The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. How are we this morning, church? Good. It's great to be with you. I just think of being here this morning singing with everyone. It's, I'm just so thankful for this church here in Burbank and what God's done here. Just an incredible community. I want to start also by getting one of the elephants in the room out of the way. I know what you're all thinking right now. I can see what you're thinking. You're thinking, where did he get that sweet glove? And... Uh, I, I tell you, they give them out for free at the hospital, so just head on down there. Uh, you might want to go with an injury first, but I, uh, I accidentally put my hand through a window uh, uh, last week, and uh, all is well, so don't worry about it, but I did want to let you know why I'm wearing this thing. So let's pray together, and we'll jump into God's Word. Uh, Father, thank you for what you're doing here in Burbank and in Story City Church, and uh, Father, as we head into Christmas right now, this is our our last Sunday gathering before Christmas. Father, we pray that you would bring hope into our hearts this morning as we dwell on this topic of hope. There is no hope outside of the person and work and promises of Jesus Christ this morning. And so I pray that you would put Jesus front and center in our view, that you would help us to turn our eyes on him so that the things of this world would grow strangely dim and that we would see his glory and no one else's. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a verse this morning. It's in Isaiah 57. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the lobby. We'd love to give you one on your way out this morning. Isaiah 57, starting in verse 15, says this. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And I wanna start here this morning as we talk about hope because I believe this verse is full of hope for us this Christmas. I believe this verse is full of good news for us this Christmas. You may not read this verse typically if you're familiar with it and think this is a Christmas verse, but I believe this is a Christmas verse because here we read who God is. He's the one who lives forever. He's high and holy. He knows no need. He knows no end. He is the sovereign one, the alpha and omega. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. He is a God of what theologians would call a seity, no need. He's endless. And yet we read here that we as needy humans who are not self-sufficient, who are not high and holy, that actually, whereas our weakness you would think would be the thing that would push God away from us. You see, in our world today, weakness is something the strong tend to turn away from. We see this all over the place. We see people who have accumulated wealth. What do they do? They move high up into sky rises and they move their lives into Teslas and Lexuses where they can shield themselves from any weakness or need. They tend to insulate themselves. We all do it. We tend to insulate ourselves from need, from vulnerability. Why? Because we know at the end of the day that we are insecure too. And so we don't wanna face that in seeing it in other people. Weakness tends to make normal strength want to avoid it, but that's not the way God works here in this verse. We see that actually weakness is the very thing that puts an impetus in God to start entering into the fray and into the center of our lives. Weakness puts gasoline in the motor of God's nearness to us. 
So are you here this morning in a season where you need hope? Are you here this morning in a season, in a long season perhaps, in a short season perhaps, where in some small way you are in a season of suffering? Are you here this morning perhaps wrestling in some way with some indwelling sin that you just can't seem to get victory over and you pray and you grieve it and you try to change and yet it maintains victory in your life? Are you here in a season like that this morning? Because if you are, this verse has great hope for us this Christmas because it promises us that that weakness, whereas we might believe that that's the actual thing that would cause God to start putting up walls and start insulating himself from us, is actually the thing that pulls God with a great gravity into our lives, into nearness. We read in Psalm 37 that he's near to the brokenhearted. And so there's hope for us this morning that God moves towards our weakness. Do you need hope this morning? Do you feel weak this morning? Your weakness is the very thing that brings the promises of God to act in your life. But what is hope? If we're gonna talk about hope and how we all need hope, we all have hope, we all have hopes, how we need Jesus as our hope this morning, what is hope? Well, the Bible has several ways to define hope, but before we get there, Webster's Dictionary. How does Webster's Dictionary define hope? Webster's Dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. One theologian described it simply as anticipating a future better than the present. See, hope is simply this. We look at the present circumstances of our lives and we see a preferred future in front of us that we wish we had and we set our hopes upon getting to that preferred future. That's what hope is. We all have it. We all have it in many ways. Our lives are filled with hope. How does the Bible define hope? Well, in the Old Testament, there are two words the Hebrew scriptures use for hope. The first is pronounced yahal. Yahal means to wait for something. To wait for something. The second is kavah. And kavah also means to wait. See, the Bible defines hope as a patient waiting. We sung it this morning. We're waiting here for you with our hands lifted high. Hope is about waiting. You see, biblical hope is not circumstance-based. It's not rooted in, well, things are going good for me right now, so my hopes are high and I think I'm gonna get there. Biblical hope is not circumstance-based. Biblical hope is not, it's neither a, a blind optimism about the future or a cynical pessimism about the present. What biblical hope is, is a choice to trust in the character and promises of God in spite of circumstances, because God is true to his word, always. See, biblical hope does not look forward. Biblical hope looks backwards. Biblical hope does not look forward to circumstances. It doesn't try to read the news clippings, the press clippings, the Twitter feeds, and figure out what's gonna happen. Biblical hope sets its gaze on the character and person of God and who he is in this moment and who he's been in the past and who he's proven himself to be because God is true to his word always. Noah modeled this, kavah, this yahal, this waiting on God as he built an ark, wondering... (laughs) Am I just building this giant boat for nothing? He had to wait on God. He had to set his gaze upon God's promises and who he was. Moses, as he led the grumbling Israelites through the desert for 40 years, waiting for the promised land. He had to exercise this hope, this yahal, this kavah, this I'm setting my hope, not on my present circumstance, I'm not drifting into cynicism. I'm not in blind optimism. My hope is in the person and promise of God that will sustain me through the desert. 
David, as he waited under the reign of King Saul. Daniel, as he was thrown into the lion's den and stood for his faith in Babylon. The prophets, Mary, as she had to approach her. Think about this moment. Mary, as she has to approach her husband, Joseph, and tell him she's pregnant, knowing she's a virgin, knowing the shame that's coming. Think of this moment as she approaches her husband. She had to yahal. She had to wait. She had to trust in the promises of God with hope that he is faithful in that moment. The apostles lived lives marked by kavah, by hope, waiting for a preferred future, trusting, looking backwards at the promises of God because he is faithful. And just like them, anyone in this room, myself included, though we wrestle and worry and struggle with anxiety, <laughs> who in this room who's walked with Christ for any, any amount of time at all cannot look back at their life and say, it hasn't always been easy, but God has been faithful. It hasn't always been easy. There's been loss. There's still questions I carry, but somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has proven himself faithful through everything I've walked through. It's true. Biblical hope looks backwards to the faithfulness of God. And Christmas, if it is about anything, is about the hope of God with us. It is about looking back to that infant in a manger and knowing that God has not left us alone. Speaking of hope, did you know that the single most watched sporting event in U.S. history was Super Bowl 51? It's true. On February 15th, 2017, if you can think back that far, at 3.30 Pacific Standard Time, as two teams took the field for kickoff, 111 million Americans gathered in living rooms around bowls of guacamole to watch the spectacle that is the Super Bowl of American football. It's estimated that roughly 28 million pounds of chips were eaten that day in that three hour span. Uh, roughly 1.25 billion chicken wings, which I think I contributed to. And 8 million pounds of guacamole were consumed, which feels low to me, honestly. Um, were consumed between the hours of 3.30 and 6.30 p.m. that day. The halftime show, some of you may remember, I'm not going to tell you, but was performed by a certain mega diva who performed an array of her hit songs. And get this, an estimated $4.9 billion were spent on advertising that day for those three hours as companies forked over disproportionate amounts of money to put their new products in front of the eagerly awaiting American public. You may or may not remember the two teams that played that day. I'm not gonna tell you, you'll have to Google it. Not right now, please wait till after church. You may remember the funniest commercials that graced the television screen that day. You may have images in your mind of the certain diva that pranced across the halftime stage performing songs about playing poker. You may not. My guess is that you probably don't. My guess is that you probably don't. And yet, think about this. A little less than two years ago, this game was the epitome of American glory and the height of glory for all involved in the game itself. Twitter pulsed with hot takes on commercials, on the halftime show as eager Americans got their much needed opinions out into the public sphere. Fanatic fans painted their faces and donned their choice players' jerseys and stared at their TV sets with the laser focus of a teenage girl at a Justin Bieber concert. This event that sat at the epicenter of American attention for a moment now sits in the archives of Wikipedia. 
To be remembered in any detail, it must be Googled by pastors desperately searching for sermon illustrations. <laughs> so what is responsible for such a spectacle as the Super Bowl? What makes 111 American citizens tune their TVs in and push all, of this, all things aside, freeways sitting empty, supermarkets empty, fellowship halls and living rooms and couches full? What is responsible for the spectacle that is the American Super Bowl and 111 people? I would argue that it's hope. I would argue that it's hope. I would argue that hope creates this spectacle. And you say to yourself, okay, pastor, you're stretching it. What? Hope? Super Bowl? How are you going to draw this line? I, it's really quite simple. The, the hope of witnessing greatness. What makes us set things aside? The hope of witnessing greatness. The hope of simply being entertained. The hope of happiness in the form of a bowl of mashed up avocados. The hope of millions for a moment, though ultimately short-lived, pressed into the archives of Wikipedia, waiting for the next spectacle to fill our insatiable appetites and hopes to be entertained and enjoy life. In contrast, 2,052 years ago, real event, planet Earth, same one we're living on right now, in a little Middle Eastern town of Bethlehem, Far from the comforts of their home, far from the familiarity of local stores and shops where they know they can go get what they need, weary from travel, hungry, likely cold, certainly afraid, a nine-month pregnant teenage girl named Mary began to experience labor pains. Her water broke. And her husband, Joseph, began frantically searching for a room where their baby boy could be delivered in moderate safety, a little bit of hygiene, and maybe just enough comfort. But every door they knocked on failed them. No vacancy, no room. They were forgotten. They were overlooked. They had no friends. They had no allies. They had no one to care for their needs. And I got to think they genuinely began wondering, are we gonna have to deliver this baby on the side of the road? Like, think about this moment. Take it out of the neat wrapping of its Christmas context and think about the reality of a teenage girl with no place to deliver her child. In a foreign city, put yourself in this situation, overlooked, alone, nothing familiar, about to give birth. At last, someone offered them a room of sorts. Not exactly a room, it was more like a barn or a shed. It was a manger meant for pigs and cattle and feral cats and dogs. They did the best they could to create a bed suitable for such a moment and there in the dark, cold and alone on the dirty ground, known by none, a baby boy was born. Mary's angst and pain was heard by no one but her husband and the animals around them. This baby boy was wrapped in rags, born in anonymity, born in discomfort, born in lack and desperation. It was a birth, if we were really honest, we would characterize with disgrace. It was a disgraceful type of birth. I mean, put yourself in this situation. Again, if you had to deliver your child, 
in a barn, would you not question God himself? How could you put me in this situation? How could you allow my child to need to be born in a barnyard? And yet this was the will of God for his eternal son of glory to enter into the story. Luke's gospel records the moment with brevity, Luke 2.6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. But here's the interesting thing. Whereas Super Bowl 51 and all sorts of events like that that capture our gaze for a moment are full of glory that's quickly fading. This moment had no immediate glory. No one placed their immediate hope in it. And yet here we are, 2,052 years later, and this baby boy, Mary and Joseph, delivered that evening is the most known and powerful and divisive name in human history. It's a name everyone that will walk this planet will have to make a decision about. Some ignore it. Some deny it. Some worship and bow down. But what happened in that manger that night, though overlooked, was the greatest miracle in eternity. And though by every human metric it seemed insignificant, it was a moment rich in significance. The eternal creator of the cosmos was being born. The one who spoke, let there be light, and light was, now viewed his creation through the blurry vision of a newborn baby. The one who sustains all things, the Bible says, by the word of his power, lied speechless without knowledge of language. The hands that gathered dirt to form Adam. The hands that would be pierced with nails for the forgiveness of sins and resurrect again with scars in them. Now were the clenched fists of a baby boy crying in the dark. God had become man. Hope had entered the story to save us from ourselves. But no one awaited his birth. The overlooked nature of the birth of Christ exposes our tendency to hope in insignificant things. And it reveals an equal tendency to overlook what is truly glorious and worthy of hope. So I want to ask a question this morning. What are you hoping in? What am I hoping in? What is the thing in your life that you say, if I could only have that, life would be great. Like if this would go right for me, I'd have it made in the shade. Or on the other flip side, what is maybe that thing in your life that you say, if I lost that, I wouldn't know how to go on. I mean, I couldn't be myself. I, I would lose myself if I lost that. See, these are lines we can trace back to the thing that ultimately has our hope. And the scriptures would point us to be and become people that the thing and the only thing that those kind of statements can be made about in our lives is Jesus Christ himself. Maybe you're here and you're saying, okay, pastor, slow down. I, just slow down. I don't, I don't hope that much. I don't hope. I mean, yeah, I hope, but like any normal, what, why, what, are we, what are we getting at here? Well, Tim Keller said this, before we try to argue away that we aren't hope-based creatures, he says, you and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. 
How we live today is controlled by what we think will happen later. And C.S. Lewis, the author and theologian, hit on the same idea when he wrote, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. This is Lewis saying this, human history is the long, miserable, terrible story of mankind hoping in the wrong things, setting its gaze on things that it believe will fulfill them, bring a preferred future. And yet time and time and time and time again, that thing fails them. But rather than wising up and recognizing the things that they're hoping and can't fulfill them and turning our eyes from the things of this world to God himself, we continue going back to more of what's already broken, more of what's already failed us. I just need more of what I already have. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be in my preferred future. No, God wants us to see the hole in our hearts can only be filled by his son, Jesus Christ. We all hope and we all hope all the time. What we hope in defines the way we live. We save now for the vacation we hope will make us happy later or the house or car we hope will bring a higher quality of life. Or we max out the credit card on things that we can't afford, hoping those things will make us happy or hoping we can project an image that will win us acceptance in desired social circles. We invest wisdom and care into our children now, hoping that they will grow to be wise and happy and in turn bring us joy. We diet now and refuse ourselves the foods we actually wanna eat, hoping for health, hoping for physique that will make us happy or attract a spouse or a significant other. Or on the other side, we wait for hours at 7 a.m. in the McDonald's drive-thru, hoping for that McGriddle that will bring six hours of happiness, six minutes of happiness, I should say. If it takes you six hours, six hours to meet a, eat a McGriddle, more power to you. We adjust lifestyle, hoping for healing. We invest hours in our career and trades, hoping for success and influence that will make us happy. We zone out in front of the TV to escape at the end of a hard day, hoping for rest and just not thinking about it. Or we indulge in substances, hoping for an escape, hoping for some numbness from the pain of life. There is no human action that is not rooted in hope. Everything we do is because we're hoping in something. I mean, trace it through life. When I was a kid, I have two daughters now, I know exactly what kids hope in. They hope in candy and they hope in cartoons. And when bedtime comes, they hope to avoid going to bed. These are the things kids hope in. But then we move on, we move up into junior high and high school, and then what do we hope for in life? We just hope to be accepted. We hope to get good grades. We hope to graduate. We hope to please our parents. We set our hopes on making a team or a cheerleading squad or whatever it is at that point in life. Then we graduate high school and those hopes no longer fulfilled us, so we move on to the next thing. And what do we hope for in college? Well, we hope to get a degree. We hope to make friends. We hope to buy a car. We hope to find a spouse. We hope to find a boyfriend or girlfriend. Then we graduate and those things no longer fulfill this. So we get married and we start the new hopes. And what, what do we hope in then? Well, we hope that us and our spouse can buy a good home. We hope that we can find an apartment we like. We hope that we can buy the car that we like. We hope that we can have kids. And then you have kids. And what do you hope for? Well, soon enough, you're hoping that the kids will leave. And then once the kids are gone, what do you start hoping for? Well, soon enough, you start hoping that the kids will come back. And then the kids come back and you hope they'll leave again. And then you die. There's got to be more. 
to life than these fragile things we put our hopes in. There has to be a hope behind the hope, something more significant, something truly fulfilling, something deeper. Author, pastor, and theologian David Zoll calls this kind of impetuous hoping, this infinite hoping, seculosity, seculosity. It's a play on words with religiosity. It's a play on words to show us that we don't have to worship God to be religious. You don't have to worship God to hope. Zoll argues that busyness, romance, parenting, technology, work, leisure, food, politics, and even the church, which he jokingly refers to as Jesus land, can all become functional religions in our lives. Things we place our hope in, things we ultimately worship. But he highlights how no matter how much we invest into these functional gods in our lives, these hopes, no matter how much we pour in and try to get them to be enough to fulfill us, they only ultimately fail us and bring more dissatisfaction and discontentment into our lives. Why? Because they were never meant to be the thing that truly and ultimately fulfilled us. And I believe that this city is full of people that are living seculosity-defined lives. Believing the next gadget will be the thing that truly brings them their preferred, their preferred future. Romans 8, 24 says this, for in this hope we were saved, we were saved in hope. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? See, here's what Romans 8 is telling us right here. It's telling that hope itself is a sign that we lack something. See, if you already have your preferred future, you don't need to hope. And we all hope, which tells us we don't have our preferred future. There's something in front of all of us that we wish we had that we don't have. Hope is a sign that we lack. And herein lies the true miracle of Christmas. See, the true miracle of Christmas, if I can sound trite for a moment, it's not in Christmas lights and Christmas trees and eggnog and Santa caps and waiting six hours in the Glendale Galleria at the Americana to visit Santa. That is not what Christmas is truly about. Christmas is about something different. Christmas is about the reality that Jesus came to show us that our waiting would one day end all together. That he was making a way for us to no longer need hope because one day there's a present reality coming that is as real as the moment we are in right now where we will stand with resurrected bodies before Jesus and know no lack at all. A day is coming where we will no longer kavah, we will no longer wait because we will have everything our souls were made to have and we will finally have a hope that has fulfilled us once and for all. So I wanna spend my last five to 10 minutes saying this, I've talked about hope a lot. What does that future hope look like? What is the preferred future that the scriptures would unfold for us as the true hope that we wait for? Second Corinthians 5.8 says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, here's the reality. We all live under this weight, knowing that no matter how much we love our family, no matter how much we accumulate, no hearse drives a U-Haul into the next life, as Denzel Washington said. We can't take our family. 
We all lose everything. See, ownership is an illusion. At the end of the day, all any of us have is Jesus. And so the wise will learn to choose him now. Ownership is an illusion. So the preferred future we all have to wonder about is what is, what is actually gonna happen when the lights go up? What is actually going to happen? What am I actually gonna see? Where will I actually be when my heart finally beats its last and it goes dark? What happens? See, some would argue it's just the end of life and life is over and you go on into the next and it's just over and life is what you lived and then you go on. Some would argue there's all sorts, there's reincarnation, there's all sorts of things, but the Christian faith has a specific preferred future that it promises us is coming through the person and work of Jesus for all who have put their faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. But so often when we hear that there's a, a future coming, a heaven coming, a new kingdom coming, we have this picture in our head from some Hallmark book we read a long time ago of an angel sitting on a cloud with a harp strumming it and we're gonna be angels disembodied on a cloud somewhere. And we think to ourselves in the recesses of our mind, that's a really boring way to spend forever. A disembodied, cute little angel sitting on a cloud. That is not the preferred future we have coming. So I wanna read a few verses for us this morning that scripture points us to as an actual reality that will, the hope, the preferred future that's actually coming for anyone who's trusted in Christ. The first is from Isaiah 25, six through nine. Christian, this morning, this is a moment you will be in. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. It's okay, Baptists, we're gonna be all right. I'm just reading the Bible. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. And get this, we trusted in him and he saved us. We hoped in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. We put our hope in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. See the preferred future we have coming is not a disembodied spiritual reality. It is a resurrected touch and feel moment where we are born again in real relationship with people we know right now. And the Lord prepares a very real, delicious, amazing feast at a banqueting table. And he presides over the ceremony and we rejoice and we drink awesome wine and we eat great food. That's a preferred future. And it's coming for us if we have trusted in Jesus. Does that sound like a good time to you? It does to me. Sounds like a party. Another one, Revelation 21, three through four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain for the older things have passed away. Is there pain in your life this morning? Is there mourning in your life this morning? Is there loss in your life this morning? Is someone you love sick this morning? There's coming a day where we don't cover under that kind of stuff anymore. 
There's coming a day where Jesus returns and crushes once and for all the enemies of Satan and sin and death. And there's no more crying. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more tears. Their last tears have been cried unless they're tears of joy in that moment. And Jesus reigns on the throne. Are you hoping in that this morning? Is that your preferred future this morning? Or is it a house on a hill? Is it the stuff of future yard sales? See, the Christian reality is this. That infant in a manger that became a man on a cross, that became a resurrected God walking out of a tomb, has created a future for us with everything we risk for and devoid of everything we hope against. And the greatest prize there will be him himself. Jesus, his presence, his nearness as our prize. But the last question I wanna ask and I'm done, how did he do it? How does Jesus create this kind of future for us? What actually happened? You don't have to go there, but I'm gonna read a verse. Romans 12 Verses one and two it says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, here it is, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. Here is how hope comes into our life. Here is how we get that preferred future. See, the reality is the Bible would tell us that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have a preferable future. If you don't have Jesus, the reality is you're headed for an eternity apart from Christ. You're headed for an eternity apart from the God for which you were made in a real place called hell. But when we come to Christ by faith, because he entered in, because he became that baby in a tomb, because he walked planet earth for 33 years and fulfilled the law he created, lived a perfect life, because he climbed up on the cross that you and I deserved because of our sin, which was treason against God on high, because he took the nails, because he took the crown of thorns, because he bled out and said, Father, forgive them and breathed his last and said, it is finished. God in that moment pours all of my sin onto him, all of your sin onto him. And in that moment, God pours all of Christ's righteousness, all of Christ's glory, all of Christ's beauty back on to you and me. So that when we come to God by faith in Christ alone, we stand before God as Christ himself and we have every hope that Christ himself had. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus takes my sin, your sin, and God gives us Christ's righteousness. We're robed in it, we're covered in it as the gospel. But what's so cool about this verse is that it says, Jesus despised the cross. This translation says scorned, but some translations would say despised. And what despised means is that when he looked at the cross, he said, eh, no big deal. He despised it. He thought it of small account. It's like, ah, cross. But why? For the joy set before him. And what was that joy? What was the joy set before him? There's a verse in Isaiah that says, the results of his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. The results of his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. What are the results of his suffering? What did he have after the cross that he didn't have before the cross? You and me, forgiven, 
redeemed, reconciled to the Father. See, the joy set before Jesus, the preferred future for Jesus was you and I. The preferred future for Jesus was you and I redeemed in his arms forever, forgiven. So simple question this morning, as we head into Christmas, three days from now, is your hope as fragile as that toy that's sitting under the tree for your five-year-old daughter or son is right now? Exciting for a moment to be discarded three days later and never played with again? Or is your hope eternal? Is your hope secure? Is your hope fixed on the person and promises and work of Jesus Christ? Bow your heads with me. Father, this morning, we want our hope to be in you. And I acknowledge with the congregation this morning, I struggle. The things of this world are shiny and attractive and I'm weak. And God, faith is difficult at times. And so Father, I pray you would help us this morning to hope in you, set our eyes on you, set our gaze on you. It's in Jesus' name.